Good morning, church family. I'm, I'm sorry that you're watching me on a video screen today, but it seemed like a good idea to exercise some additional caution because, uh, well, really to protect you guys because one of the kiddos and I tested positive for the Rona. Um, and also we have, since I wrote this, we've had a couple of other kids who have ended up having COVID also apparently. So uh, the only one left unscathed at the moment is Shannon. And that's good because she's taking care of COVID patients at the hospital pretty frequently. Uh, so anyway, I, I know how hard it is for you guys to stay tuned in, even when the preacher is physically standing in front of you. And so uh, I'm going to try to keep this to a respectable length, but believe me, uh, it'll be worth it if you keep up. So by God's grace, there, there is a lot of good material in today's passage. And, and I really think that we will all gain something if we stay focused. So if you would, please take a look at the sermon title here. Um, the sermon title, in case you're wondering how that second word is pronounced, uh, it's not Barnaby, like the TV show that some of you might remember, but Barnaby, because that's easier to say than Barnabas's or whatever. Uh, so the main, the main title here is being Barnaby, because the main human character in this passage, who is Barnabas, he has all kinds of great qualities that we can learn to, to take a look at and, and perhaps maybe grow some uh, if, we, if we can imitate some of these characteristics and these qualities that he has. So... If y'all don't mind, grab your Bibles, um, your phone, your tablet, whatever. Go to Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be picking up in verse 22 uh, in just a minute or so. But, but in the meantime, if you want a, a longer look at the slides as we go, you can download the PowerPoint from the email uh, that circulated around before uh, today. It's, it's usually for the people who are at home. I, I know our, our trusty cameraman will be going back and forth between the pulpit and the PowerPoint. Uh, but if you miss something, you can always get it from the email. Uh, anyway, this past week, we looked at verses 19 through 21 of Acts chapter 11, and they were kind of giving us uh, a window into what was happening with the church while Paul and Peter were off kind of doing their own respective ministries. And, and nearly all of the believers had dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution, and they were, they were kind of bouncing around a bit before many of them settled in Antioch, which was a, a city up north of Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember the map from last week, but... Uh, it's, it's in modern-day Turkey. So, anyway, that's where we left off. I'm going to read through the text and uh, the, the next few verses here. So, uh, if you would, just, just kind of follow along with your eyes. Uh, the report of this, referring to the believers that were settling in Antioch, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they, saw, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. I'm going to say a prayer. Uh, please bow with me. Father God, I, I thank you for your word. Lord, it, it is weird uh, today um, as, I, as I am recording this message or being recorded, uh, speaking to a room um, that, that's empty except for uh, my friend Dave there in the back. But Lord, we know that your spirit is here with us now and your spirit will be with the people that are listening to this on Sunday morning. We ask, Father God, that every single person that is within the sound of uh, of my voice, Father, and those that, that, uh, that belong to you wherever we are. Father, I pray that each of us will receive something powerful from your word this morning. 
We ask, Father, that you will produce great fruit through what is taught today and what is received today by your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, before we break this passage down, I want to remind you uh, of who Barnabas actually was. Now, the first time we see this guy is in Acts chapter 4, uh, and his real name, by the way, was Joseph. You may remember that. And the reason that he's called Barnabas is actually uh, a nickname which literally translates as son of encouragement, which I think is really pretty cool. Um, you know, it's one of, the, one of the best kinds of people to know is a person who's an encourager, right? You know, especially when you're feeling kind of beaten down, uh, when you're weak, you're, you're, you know, it's nice to have someone come alongside you and build you up and, and to give you strength, to give you courage when you're exhausted, right? Uh, so when Barnabas is first mentioned, he is a person who, who sold a piece of property, you may remember this, and he gave the money to the apostles to help those who were in need. And the second time that Barnabas shows up in Acts is a few chapters later. It's in chapter 9. Uh, he's the guy who truly believed that Saul of Tarsus was no longer an enemy, but now he's a believer in Jesus. Okay? And so the rest of the apostles, they were, they were still afraid of Saul, you know, a.k.a. the apostle Paul. But Barnabas had accepted Saul's conversion as legitimate, and he brought him to the other apostles. So this is a fellow who is he, he's highly generous with his resources and with himself. You know, he takes risks to help others. And he's strongly showing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in his life. Uh, okay, now this is the third time that Barnabas shows up is right here. And he becomes more prominent in the future. Um, but it says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So I think the first thing that we can learn about being Barnabai is to be a go-to guy or a go-to girl whenever the Lord has work to do. Now, in this particular case, uh, to be fair, it was the church at Jerusalem who sent Barnabas and not the Lord himself specifically, but sometimes the Lord does speak through the leadership of a church. And when the church felt led to send Barnabas to Antioch, where, where the new believers were going to need some help getting their spiritual feet under them, Barnabas went. The Jerusalem church, they, they realized that, that he had some of that Isaiah 6 spirit, you know, that here I am, send me kind of attitude. So, so like all good church leadership, they wanted Barnabas to be able to operate in his gifting, and they sent him out. And one thing I really appreciate about this passage is that it not only shows the intense trust that the church had in Barnabas, but it also shows just how selfless the church was in sending him. I mean, clearly Barnabas could have been a big help right there where he was in Jerusalem. But the believers there, they understood there were people that were 300 miles away that needed him even more. And so they sent him to Antioch. And I love this. I, I love the fact that the early church, they never seemed to show any indication that they were just trying to build a castle for themselves, you know, so to speak, uh, or a kingdom. It was always about God's kingdom, not their kingdom. It was always about God's kingdom. And this attitude is really, it's not always been prevalent in the church. I mean, even today, there, there are some churches they're probably more concerned about building their own brand than the kingdom of God. And it's good to remember that, that we are not in competition with any other Bible-teaching, gospel-believing congregation. We are all part of the same church with a great big capital C. Anyway, if we want to be Barnabai, we'll be open to serving where the Lord leads. So what happened when Barnabas got to Antioch? When he came and saw the grace of God... He was glad. 
It's real simple. I like that description. You know, it's it, just as the Jerusalem church didn't feel threatened to send out one of their top guys, neither did Barnabas feel threatened when he, he got to where he was supposed to be going and he saw the Holy Spirit actively working, you know, actively involved in what was happening there outside of Jerusalem. And this, this attitude, you know, that might seem like a no-brainer for some of us. You know, we, we would think, of course he's happy to see the Holy Spirit at work. But, you know, because Christians are supposed to work together. But listen, if, if you've ever been... If you've ever been in a congregation that was embroiled in church politics, then, then you've seen how counterproductive that it can be toward fulfilling the mission of Christ. And so, so please, be encouraged, uh, encouraged, say like Barnabas is encouraged, to let God's grace make you glad. Wherever you see it. Let God's grace make you glad. Whether it's in the spiritual life of your congregation or if it's in baby steps of communication with your spouse, or if a, a frustrating person at work is, is, is uncharacteristically kind to you, or, or even if it's just a slight improvement in your relationship with a wayward child, even if it's a green light when you're late, rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. You know, recognize, as James 1 says, that all good and perfect gifts come from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadow. If we're accustomed to praising him for his grace and for his, his acts of kindness, wherever we see them, whenever we see them, it's far easier to spot them after a while, even in times of darkness, because you get in a habit of seeing the good, of seeing the grace of God. It's a good habit to be in. As for the context in this passage, though, most likely it's saying that Barnabas was glad because he was observing the fruit of the Holy Spirit as evidenced among these believers, just like he saw it among the Jewish Christians. But he's seeing it now in Antioch instead of in Jerusalem. And if you recall, last week, um, many of the Jews that lived in Antioch were, were Hebrew in ancestry, but not in culture. They, they lived more like Greeks. Okay, and they, they probably would have been, you know, on the outside as far as Jerusalem uh, Jews or as far as even Judaism in general was concerned. But, but in the church, see, under the new covenant, they were every bit as acceptable to God as those who have been faithful Jews all along. It, it is the powerful grace of God to observe when he is at work in the hearts and minds of those who had previously not been a part of his people, you know, to be able to see that. Anyway, reading on, uh, and this next part, we're going to take this in really small chunks, okay? And he exhorted them all. We're just going to pause right there. He exhorted them all. What, what does that mean, exhorted? What is exhortation? You know, in English, it means to make an urgent appeal. And because exhort is such a, it's an uncommon word in our vernacular, and the Greek word is, is typically translated encourage. I'm going to use encourage in this outline, okay? But know this, the Greek word there is very, very deep, all right? It, it has a lot of, of possible translations that are all kind of interrelated. They're all closely connected to one another. Literally, it means to call in. So in English idiom, uh, would be to, to come alongside. We use that word a lot, to come alongside, or that phrase, to come alongside someone. It, it's the same 
Greek root word that Jesus uses in John 16 when he refers to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, the, the counselor. So with that in front of your mind, I want to then, then just ask that we all recognize that we Christians are called to encourage one another. And both the scriptures that were read during the song service talked about, you know, what that should look like, what encouraging one another is, okay, and, and about how important it is. But it's important that we recognize what encouraging one another should not look like as well as what it should look like. Now, now this, I'm going to tell you this right up front. This might make you, you cringe a little bit. I might be stepping on a few toes, um, but I'm not here this morning. So that either gives you a week to cool off or a week to let your tomatoes get more rotten, whichever. Um, I, I, see, I see, though, a very poor and unbiblical type of so-called encouragement happening consistently on social media. You know, it's when a person vents on Facebook or, or you know, Twitter or whatever about someone or, or something that, that was done that hurt the feelings or that put them out. And then and they have this clear expectation, typically, that people are going to pile on, right? You know, that, that all their friends are going to post comments and, and tell them, well, you're in the right and the other party was in the wrong and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And people do, right? People with absolutely no idea of what happened will just, or, or who was right, you know, if anyone was right, they'll just jump in and pick sides over something ridiculous. And I will tell you frankly, I'm guilty of this, okay? I've gotten a lot better, but I still slip up sometimes, and I do this. Both sides of it. That is not the kind of encouragement that we need. And another thing that happens far too often is that when someone makes a sinful decision and their friends, even professing Christians, will tell them that they need to be true to themselves or they need to follow their heart, even though their heart is, is clearly leading them away from God's will and, and into self-destruction. That is not encouragement in the biblical sense. In fact, that is actually the part of the lowest rung on the downward spiral of depravity that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So when your friend comes to you and says she's not attracted to her husband anymore, but she does like a guy at work, you must not tell her to follow her heart. And when your coworker tells you that he thinks he's gay or he's a woman trapped in a man's body, you must not tell him to be true to himself. You know, if your child said that he or she was suicidal, would you buy them a gun for their birthday? Of course not. Of course not. Encouragement in a scriptural sense is going to follow biblical guidelines. I just want to clarify that before reading on. So Barnabas exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Ah, so what we've seen, you know, here where, where we've noted not all so-called encouragement is good. Now we have a window into what real encouragement actually looks like. What kind is good? There's one very particular way that, that we should encourage one another if we're following the example of Barnabas. 
Okay? And, and this is how we go. We should encourage one another specifically to remain in the Lord. In other words, to adhere, to grab hold of Christ. The Greek word there is the word for cling to or cleave to. And this was kind of difficult passage for me to wrap my head around, so I, I checked with my, my resident Greek scholar, my dad, and, uh, and, and he agreed that a good translation here, um, actually he, he basically told me, and I agreed, I should say it that way, that a good translation here uh, was that Barnabas urged them to remain in the Lord with resolute purpose of heart. It's really interesting to me that the word used for steadfast purpose, literally means to expose. As in to expose the showbread in the temple. That's the example that's given in Strong's Concordance. Now being Gentiles, we may not catch the illusion there, so, so let me try to explain it like this. I don't know how many of y'all remember back before they had digital cameras, but, but cameras actually used to use real literal film. Right? And you had to be careful about how you took pictures because you didn't want to, uh, to, to mess up them. I mean, you didn't get to see. You only got 24 pictures in a roll, typically. And so you didn't want to make a mistake and take a picture of something that you didn't really want on there. And so you were careful. And not only that, you didn't get to see them. It wasn't like where you could just look at your digital camera and see the picture you just took. You had to wait until you took your film roll of 24 exposures up to the photo developing place at the corner by Skaggs or wherever, you know, wherever you lived as a kid. And it was, it was very inconvenient compared to what we have nowadays. You know, so convenient uh, now that, that uh, you know, we all have this ability to just look at this little LCD. Back then, it, it, it was so inconvenient. I think my mom probably still has a couple of rolls of undeveloped 35 millimeter film in her fridge. I really think that's possible. Mom, if you're watching, you can call me and let me know, okay? Um, back in those days, though, your, your film could only be exposed correctly through being processed by a developer. And if you wanted the pictures to come out, that was the only way to do it, unless you knew how to do it yourself and you had a dark room in your home or whatever. Otherwise, uh, if you drop your camera, for instance, and it just pops open and prematurely exposes the, uh, the awesome black and white pictures that you just took at Washington Monument, this happened to me, okay, by the way, in case you're wondering, on the Capitol steps. Your pictures are done. <laughs> They're gone, okay? So that's pretty much what happens. If you prematurely expose your film, your pictures are ruined. But anyway, my point is once the film is exposed, there is no going back. And it was the same thing with the showbread, okay? The showbread was bread that was... Uh, according to the Levitical law, it was baked and then it was used for a few hours uh, on the altar at the temple. I believe it may have been for 24 hours. I didn't do the research to tell you for sure. But, but it, was, it was every day they would bake new bread, they would put it on the altar, and it was intended to be eaten by the priests. It was considered consecrated. Okay, So the Greek word that's being used here in conjunction with cardia, by the way, which uh, you probably know it, it means... It means have a heart for not turning back. Does that make sense? Have a heart for not turning back. Steadfast. Resolute. 
Cling to the Lord with a resolute heart. That's what we're supposed to be encouraging one another to do. And there's literally nothing more important that we could encourage one another to do. Cling to the Lord with a resolute heart. And that covers a whole lot, you know. So, he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Now, this, this almost feels like a trap, <laughs> and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, the part about being full of the Holy Spirit and faith might sound familiar. If it does, uh, it might be because that was also used to describe Stephen back in Acts chapter 6. Uh, but regarding the word good, <laughs> there are very few places, I'm thinking of you, Tom, <laughs> I'm looking at your seat over here, um, there's, there are very few places in the New Testament where a human being is referred to as good. And that's the Greek word uh, agathos, by the way. So if you have any good friends named Agatha, uh, then you're probably really old, but that name means good. Okay, But we might struggle with that word being used to describe a person, since Christ himself once said that no one is good except God alone. So what does it mean that Barnabas was good? I think the key is in the rest of the sentence, personally. I mean, it, it says he was full of the Holy Spirit, who is in fact the third person of the triune God. He was also full of faith. And the Bible makes it clear that it is God working in us and through us, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So I think that the point here is not that there was you know, some kind of contradiction you know, when Jesus said that no one is good. There's three caveats here, okay? Um, first, and this is for you language nerds, and, and, but I want you to understand the Bible does not contradict itself in the sense that, uh, you know, that, that it says one thing in a certain way and then says the exact opposite uh, in the same way later. That's not how that works. Okay, Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, not Greek, for instance, although it was later written down uh, in the Quane Greek for posterity. Secondly, Jesus spoke both under the Old Covenant and, and with the Holy Spirit not yet being poured out on unbelievers. Those two things. Uh, and then thirdly, as the word good has many possible meanings, okay, just as it does in English, Jesus most likely spoke uh, with kind of a tongue-in-cheek understanding of good as meaning morally perfect. But under the New Covenant, all of God's people, every single one of us, have the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us the desire and the ability to actually be good, though still imperfectly, because our flesh still gets in the way. With that understood, though, we should all be good in that we are full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Our lives ought to show it. I mean, like Barnabas, we won't be sinless as only Christ was without sin. But we ought to do good works as God provides us with, with both the desire and the ability. You know, agathos can be translated as beneficial. And that's, that's what Christians are called to be. You know, just as salt and light are beneficial, so we must be to the world around us. And if we did this well, what results do you think we should expect? Well, what was the fruit of Barnabas? 
and his, his encouragement of these believers to remain in the Lord with a steadfast purpose of heart. Luke writes, And a great many people were added to the Lord. You know, this is a pretty consistent theme in the book of Acts. It shows up in a lot of different places. You know, a seemingly random, but actually God-breathed, moment where the, the author tells us about the growth of the church because of, of something the Lord was doing through his people. So, to put the cherry on top of this paragraph, the result was that great numbers were added to the Lord. And that's, that's wonderful, but the story's not over yet. What happens next? So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Why do you suppose that was? Why, why do you think he did that? I mean, again, Barnabas knew that Saul was a spectacular mind. And he was also a completely sold-out believer in Jesus. So, so Saul and Barnabas, neither of them, were threatened by the other. You know, Barnabas was, was not intimidated by the fact he's bringing someone on that was probably going to end up with top billing. You know, what mattered is that he would have a reliable person at his side. Friends, if we want to be Barnabai, then we've got to look for people to partner with in our Christian walk. Now, unfortunately, the word partner has taken on a different connotation in the last few years uh, to where it's become synonymous with, with either life partner or sexual partner in our culture. But, but don't let that ruin your view of what it means to partner with someone. You know, in, in one of his epistles, Paul refers to uh, one of his ministry partners as a loyal yoke fellow. A loyal yoke fellow. I, I love that phrase. I think that's a great way to describe and to view partnering with people. Because think about it. What, what does that mean? It means, it means sharing a yoke, which is you know the, the bar that goes across the shoulders of oxen or donkeys. It, it, it means sharing this yoke, which is both a burden and a goal, and then, and then pulling the same direction together in order to accomplish a task. So that's probably what Barnabas had in mind. You know, it, it's likely he would have been the most spiritually mature believer in Antioch from the moment he got there. And, and anyone who's ever been in that position, which I'm not sure I have, uh, knows how easy it can be to, to sink to a lowest common denominator instead of elevating people up to where the Lord has called them. Now, thankfully, most of us who are uh, in the ministry, I was about to say young, but that doesn't describe me anymore. Most of us who are in the ministry, when we get to a church, there are, are those who are uh, ahead of us in the faith, who have been there and more mature for a long time. That was not the case for Barnabas. Barnabas would show up, and he would be the most spiritually mature person. And when that happens, it is always beneficial for a person in leadership and really for any Christian to have other believers walking side by side with us. And so what does Barnabas do? He goes to Tarsus looking for Saul. Notice it literally says he went to look for Saul. You know, he didn't just like post a generic ad on Craigslist and, you know, and say, you know, the apostle seeking another apostle for Christian fellowship. No, he, he didn't do that. He knew that the Lord was doing great things through Saul also known as Paul, <laughs> and he knew that, that Paul's specific gifting 
and his level of maturity would be beneficial to himself and to this new church that he was being asked to, to lead, to pastor. And so it makes sense that we should all practice discernment about who we seek to partner with in our Christian walk. Anyway, reading on. And when he found him, excuse me, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it's not just about looking for people to partner with, right? Once we find them or once they find us, then we should include them in fellowship and in ministry. Now, we don't know. This is, this is something that occurred to me when I was thinking this through. I, I don't know exactly what the Apostle Paul was doing at the time, but knowing Paul, it's probably something that glorified God, you know? However, when Barnabas came to him, Paul, or Saul, he recognized that, that this new opportunity was from the Lord. And he knew it would mean working with a brother in the Lord, and so he agreed. And I want to reiterate that this, this certainly uh, would have been a dual purpose, right, to this endeavor uh, of, of finding Saul and bringing him back to Antioch. Barnabas and Saul, they already knew each other, right? They already knew each other uh, very well. They'd already been friends. They'd already... They'd already done some ministry together, but they had been separated by geography for quite a while at this point. But now, both Barnabas and Saul would have a mature believer to act as a sounding board, to act as an accountability partner and help them along in their own faith walk. And this, this is a really valuable relationship for a believer to have. Here, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you want to stay a baby Christian who's still on just milk 10 years from now, this is how you do it. You don't hang out with anyone who challenges you, okay? You don't have any transparent, authentic friendships with another person who cares deeply for your spiritual well-being, right? You don't have someone that you share everything with. Okay, that, that's how you stay a baby. If you want to grow in maturity, then you need all of those things that a milk baby is going to have to avoid. Now to add to this, every believer leads, needs at least one faithful friend that you can serve alongside on a fairly consistent basis. So here's, here's my challenge for you today. If you've, been, if you've been doing anything on the regular, you know, that's serving God and that's blessing others in some way. If you've been doing it by yourself, let me encourage you to bring someone else along. Bring someone, a, a Christian brother or sister that's the same gender as you. If you're male, bring a male. If you're female, bring a female. Show them that part of your life. Share yourself and your ministry with that person and encourage them to do the same for you. Because when we do this, we, we remind ourselves and each other, that, that, that we're here to love God and love people and serve the least and reach the lost. I mean, seriously, folks, next time you, you, you want to do a good deed or have a power prayer session, get somebody else in on it with you. You know, not, not to like, you know, show the, the right hand what the left hand is doing or, or whichever way that goes. It, it, it's, it, that's not why we're doing it, but to share the joy of serving God. To share the joy of blessing others. Let, let's finish up. Um, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. 
I love this. Again, it's, it's the idea of Saul and Barnabas being yoke fellows, two folks tied together by a common burden and purpose. And what was that purpose? What was that goal? It was to work together to make disciples for Jesus Christ. You know, the first part of making disciples, as Jesus said in Matthew 28, is to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But see, that's the easy part, right? That's not where you say, well, got them wet, good to go. Dunk them and junk them. That's not how it works. Since, since, and by the way, these people that they were meeting with, these people were already a part of the church. And, and so the baptism, that had already been taken care of, right? As no one was considered a part of the early church unless you had been immersed into the faith. They, they have to submit to baptism. But the hard part is what Saul and Barnabas were doing. It's teaching them to obey, to keep the commandments of Christ. That's what Barnabas and Saul did and, and what we ought to strive to do if we want to be Barnabai. Now, if you, if you look behind me, you'll see, I mean, this, this is a pretty intense list. You know, um, I think Dave is going to pan to it one more time. If, if we want to be Barnabai, we need to be a go-to guy. You know, we need to let God's grace make us glad. Encourage one another specifically to remain in the Lord with resolute purpose of heart. We should be good, as in be full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And we ought to look for people to partner with, including them in fellowship and ministry as we work together to make disciples. I realize that that is a lot, guys. It is. I know it, 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 it's a high bar. And most of you listening, you're probably not in vocational ministry. So it may seem like this isn't really for you, uh, but let me encourage you, it really is, okay? This really is for all of us. Every Christian brother or sister has a ministry. The majority of Christians aren't called to, to pastoral pulpit ministry, but every one of us is called to share Christ with our words and with our deeds. Everyone. That's all part of what we're called to. All right, last thing. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. If I were here in person today, I would ask if anybody remembers what Christian means since we've talked about it before. But knowing we've all slept since then, let's just go back over it really quickly. The word Christian in Greek is the diminutive form of the word Christ. So in other words, uh, the apparent result of this societal change led by the church was that believers became known as little Christs. You know, it's been said that this was a derisive term at first. And maybe it was, you know, like Puritan. But how... Powerful to think that believers would live lives that are so exemplary, so counterculturally moral and gracious that they would be called little Christs. We don't think of that today, do we? When, when we claim to be a Christian. You know, sadly, I think many people 
are only claiming to be a Christian in a, in a tribal sense. You know, like, like um, I, I've heard recently somebody say it uh, in the sense of, you know, um, I'm a Christian because I'm not a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist. Um, many others will identify as Christian in much the same way that, that a person with gender dysphoria might claim to be a woman when they're actually a man or vice versa. It's simply that they feel like they're a Christian, you know, because maybe they've done some rituals or they've checked a few religious belief boxes as opposed to actually being born again by the Holy Spirit of God, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And claiming you're a Christian doesn't make you one. Going to church doesn't make you one. What makes you a Christian is being justified by the Lord. Washed in the blood of Christ. The Son of God. Crucified for our sins and risen from the dead. When that happens, your life will begin to look different. Your affections will change. Your attitude will change. You know, eventually your behavior will change. That's God working in you to make you a little Christ. He's doing the same in me. If you have been justified, you will be being sanctified. I ask you, church, wouldn't it be awesome if Christians today were truly known as little Christs once again because we try to really be like Jesus? Wouldn't that be great? Well, you know what? It, it, it can be that way. It just it has to start somewhere. And it can start here. I mean, it really can. It can start here. If we can exemplify Christ with our words and our deeds... Starts in our thoughts, too, guys, in case you didn't know that. If we can just be who God made us to be when we were born again, perhaps we can help bring the name Christian to be synonymous with little Christs again. Now, if you're here today and that's something that maybe you thought, wow, that'd be really cool, but I've never even been a Christian. I don't know where to, where to start. Well, I'll tell you where to start. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, then the Lord has given you that gift, and I want to encourage you to uh, not quash it. Don't crush it down. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, your first step of repentance, of turning from your sin, is to confess that faith and be immersed according to what the Scriptures teach. And we can do that today. Even though I'm not here, <laughs> there will be somebody here who will do it. In fact, I know the baptistry is already going to be warm. Because, man, I wish I could be here for that. Ah, because there's a, one little precious person who is going to get baptized today. But um, that can also be you. If you've never done what Christ has called you to do, do that. And then that's your first step of walking in faith. So I want to challenge you to do that this morning, and um, I guess at this point, Everett's probably already made his way up here, and he's going to lead us in a song, so uh, I'm going to step down, and um, yeah, that's it.